for those who have come late and have not uh, follow, is not going to follow the drift of what we're doing. <laughs> we're starting. Okay, those who are coming for the first time and may not be fully what we're doing, it will become clear as we go along exactly the drift and thrust of this entire series of classes. We began a few weeks ago with the question, what are the most interesting narratives in Tanakh? And then we spoke about what are the most disturbing narratives in Tanakh. And each person had their opinions one way or the other. And finally, we came to the question, what are the most striking or strange narratives in Tanakh? So, of course, it's somewhat arbitrary. Of course, it's somewhat absurd to even ask the question. It's a very subjective kind of a question. Nevertheless, I thought it's a very good idea to try to focus on certain narratives that will tickle your fancy, that should make your hair stand up, we're applicable, right? And make you somewhat upset at why Tanakh is really telling us this whole entire narrative. Difficult. And when I asked the question, you know, people, Jaime had one suggestion, had one suggestion, although none of the suggestions that they had suggested were the ones that I had come up with. And of course, what's involved over here is the very subtle interplay of how your mind works. How when you're stricken with some kind of phenomenon that does not make sense, prima facie or at first glance, how your mind wants to make that make sense. So therefore you're going to try all kinds of strategies, some kind of interpretive strategies, which of course is what commentary is all about. Commentary is the attempt to make sense of a literary text on every realm and every single culture and every single form of literature. Why are you commenting? You're commenting something bothers you about something in that text. It could be a philosophical question, it could be a literary question, it could be anything. Interesting question to be if I were to ask you the question, which biblical text generated the most commentary? What I'm really saying is which commentary really is the most disturbing? Now, if I were to ask that question in the medieval period of time, you get one answer. But ask it in the modern period of time, you get a completely different answer. Not to belabor that point, and it's something that we can um, pursue another point, just to make an offhand uh, guess at that, modernly, the most disturbing text, I'd like to ask you this question, but again, time does not allow us to, the most disturbing text that generated the most commentary is one of two. Quick answer. No. No. Akedah. Creation is simple, easy. The modern issue would be the Akedah because how could God ask of a man to sacrifice his son? And the second would be Shavat Amin or the, let's say the Mitzvah to root out all of the Midianites, the end of the book of the Midbar, even the little children. And the women who had had relations with the person, yes, unmarried women, no. Wow, how do we deal with that? So that would generate a tremendous amount of commentary in the bit modern period of time. However, in the medieval period of time, very little commentary. I did a, one of my doctoral um, orals, I took five theological contexts. Where I took the theological context, like Da'itzhak was one, and Haita Ega was another, etc. And I analyzed the medieval comments on it. It's amazing how they were not disturbed, for example, by Akka Da'itzhak. Didn't bother them at all. No call. Uh, modernly, that's a very serious issue. Medievally, it's not. It depends upon what assumptions you come to with your text. 
depending upon your assumptions, a text will be more or less disturbing to you. If you're a Greek, reading the Greek myths, which we find very disturbing, think of the most absurd Greek myth that you could think of, right, whatever it may be, they found that as normative. That's part of their culture, part of their ideas, no problem with that. Similarly, there are certain things that we're going to find in literature very normative that somebody 50 years from now is going to find very disturbing, absurd, how could they write or think or do these kinds of things, whatever it may be. So it's a question of where you are in a spectrum that's going to make something more or less disturbing or more or less striking. Now, our first text, which we're not going to go over now, though we have new people, sorry, you pay a price for coming uh, late, is the first two chapters of Eeyore. We had seen certainly, and again, the question over here is somewhat of an experiment because I'm stricken by these five texts that I've chosen. I'm wondering whether you're stricken by them as well. But I'm going to challenge you with a statement that can anybody not find the first chapter, stri first chapter striking? It's absurd. It doesn't make sense. Angels come along. God says to the Satan, See, you're a great guy. Oh, could you bless him? Take away his blessings and he'll really curse you. So that happens. His kids die. His wealth is lost. He sits down. He tears his shirt and starts to mourn. His wife tells him, Curse God and die. No, what are you, crazy? God gave. God took. Everything's fine. God gave. God take. God took. Let God's name be blessed. Now, even that reaction, of course, one can analyze that reaction also, and we can raise the question, who of us in a modern context would say that if God forbid somebody's child is taken from them? Would we say God gave God, may God's name be blessed? We might see Suzukadin, we may tear our clothes, do everything we have to do, for sure. But we wouldn't be as sanguined, as, as almost accepting as Eov actually is. We can't. It not, does not fit into our religious parameters. It does not fit into our psychological parameters. In the same way that a suicide bomber's mother throws a big festive uh, hefla, a big beautiful wonderful party when the kid's killed. Joyous, fantastic. Let, I wish I had ten sons like this to go kill himself and kill more Jews with it. They're quoted as saying that. Whether it's true or not, I'm not sure. Assuming it is true. We're horrified by those statements and sentiments. But part of a cultural norm is to accept and decide that is the appropriate way of living and dying for your religion. Martyrdom. But to us it's horrifying. We see life as precious beyond all else. So it's a question of what your assumptions are when you approach a text, when you approach an event in life. Whatever it is, you're going to respond and comment on it. So the first chapter of Yob, of course, is um, a very disturbing one for all of us. Right? Okay, good. And again, you could raise this question, whether it's disturbing to the medievals or to the classical Jewish commentaries. Did they see the fact that God is discussing with his angels, one, and Satan in particular, one man, and the man says to God, and Satan says to God, just strike him and see what he says. God says, okay, no problem, I'll do that. And it's done. Man blesses. Worse, of course, is the second chapter, which we began last time. The day came, all the angels come around, and Satan comes there, and God says to Satan, where are you coming from? I'm floating around. I'm chapter 2, so there's Tanakhs over there. Just take the one that's appropriate for you, whether English or Hebrew. That, uh, it's in volume 2, so that's, that's probably volume 1. Right? Volume 1? You have volume 1 or 2? 
Hey, just look at what, what do you have? What, tell me one book. I have volume two. Me? So you have a yob. Okay, so you have a yob. So you have volume one. Oh, I don't have. No. So let's pass one this way. There's, there's two more over there. The white one, the brown one. Depending on how old you are, use the bigger one or the smaller one. How well you could see, how good your glasses are. You brought your glasses. Sorry, anybody else need? Okay. So the second chapter, of course, is even much more disturbing. Why is that? So where are you coming from? I'm floating around. God says to the Satan, Did you pay attention to my servant, Eov? There's nobody like him in the whole issue. And again, God testifies to his greatness. He's Ishtam, Yasha, He is a superiorly righteous person. You find nobody like this particular person. Nobody in Tanakh, as we've mentioned before, is described with a fourfold description of his righteousness. Nobody described as that. Right? Okay, good. I came up in doing some research for this class with a fantastic midrash that I don't think I mentioned last time. The midrash says that Yehovah is so righteous, right, that the Amidah would have said, Elohe Abraham, Elohe Yitzhak, Elohe Yaakov, Elohe Yehov. Did I mention that? No. Elohe Yehov. Well, wait, you're both the same place. You can't say yes and you can't say yeah. no. Did I say it? Yes, okay. I fell asleep. But I said it actually on Tisha Av. Maybe I didn't see it. Say it here. You didn't say it. Oh, I didn't say it here. So you got it wrong. You got it right. Good. Uh, thank you, Mark. Yeah, it was a shul of Shabbat. Right. Look how striking that particular midrash is. We would put Eov among the forefathers had he not raised the question. Had he not raised what question? He raised it as you go along. He oh, raised several questions. Okay. So, but that's how great Eov was. And the God of Eov. He's the, not even Jewish. Yet, he would have been up there with the forefathers had he not raised one significant question later on. That's Eeyore, a fantastically righteous person. So God says he's wonderful. And God says he is still grabbing onto, holding onto with his righteousness. And you, Tisitani, Satan, supplying the word, you turned me to swallow him for naught. Okay, now, that's a very heavy thing for God to say. And in order to get a literary play on words, but in verse 3, what is it? Tani Bo. Tisitani, Satan. Satan. In the word Satan, you know, it's spelled differently. The word Tisitani, which means, you translate it how? Translation, Tisitani, verse 3. Tisitani. You have. Excited? No? Inside. Okay, inside. There should be other translations there as well. What does um, Diane have? What did you. The end of three. Enticed. Okay, enticed is really, I think, a better word. But okay. Enticed or incited. So you enticed me, you incited me against him to swallow him for naught. Now, for God to be enticed or incited to swallow him for naught raises a whole host of theological questions. We agree. It's a very difficult thing for God to say. Right? The enticed part or the for naught? The enticed just sounds like you're using human traits, but the for naught. So, for God to say that you enticed me, forget for naught, could God be enticed? Could God be incited against somebody? I mean, I tell Satan, look at this admission of guilt. You, Satan, made me, it's almost saying, um, I hate to say this, what happens in the Garden of Eden? God says to, um, Adam, what'd you do wrong? Oh, the woman made me do it. Woman, what'd you do? The snake made me do it. Everybody's passing the buck. So God's saying over here, you enticed me. 
So what is he saying? I'm not taking responsibility for this. You made me do this. To swallow this man. It's a very strange admission for God to make. Or at least, put it this way, it's a very strange admission for some author, rabbinic or otherwise, to put in the mouth of God. Right? Okay, we go further. Stan says to God, skin for skin, flesh for flesh, whatever man has, he'll give for his own soul. I want you, this is astounding, I want you now to send forth your hand and grab onto him and touch him and his own flesh. He'll curse you. In the English, do you have the at the end of verse 5, to curse or to bless? Blaspheme. To blaspheme. Okay, it really means literally to, to bless. But it's a euphemism for to blaspheme. Okay, to curse or bless, good. Now, we're all hoping and praying that, fill in my blank, that God says no. I won't God does not fall into the trap. We want that to happen. We're not, this is a terrible, terrible narrative. I mean, you wouldn't want to be God's lawyer over here, would you, Lee? You try a little, huh? No, okay. If you're a trial lawyer, you don't want to do this kind of a thing. I mean, because how did this happen? If you're all, you know, imagine the, the prosecuting attorney. God, you're omnipotent. You're omniscient. You know everything. Why'd you fall again? Okay, the first time, hard to explain why you fell into this trap. Okay, so you would, whatever. Second time around, you're going to go and consume the flesh of a person because Satan says, you know what he did with Satan. You know what he's all about. And if you don't know from previous experiences, you know from the first chapter over here. No, I'm doing it. What happens in verse 6? Hashem says to Satan, he's in your hands. Give him to the hands of Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Torquemada, however you want. He's in your hands, but don't kill him. Do anything you want him, don't kill him. Anything you want, but don't kill him. So Satan leaves, and he smites Eyob with bad Shaheen boils from the Kafraglo from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Imagine the extraordinary pain of an infected boil. Now, it's an interesting question why he chose this. But imagine uh, you can't cure this. What do you do with it? You know, no antibiotics, pus, infection, open wounds, and you know, your complete body. You know, think about the most extreme pain you've ever felt. What's the most extreme pain you've ever felt? Besides childbirth, I mean. Toothache. Okay. This is pretty painful, this. Toothache. Being stung by a... Uh, a bee? No, the one that you see by a... Uh, oh. Yeah, oh, just that was... That hurt that no, much? No, in South Carolina, it was like a needle going through your... I'm not going to South Carolina ever. <laughs> you convinced me. I'm not going there. Okay. So he experiences this extraordinary pain. He takes headaches. He takes some kind of clay pot in order to scratch himself. Now, you imagine a unscratchable or unrelievable scratch. You can't relieve it. And the more you scratch, what happens to a ball that you scratch? It gets worse and worse and worse. It opens up, pus, infestation, horrible situation. He's sitting in effort, in um, some kind of ashes for comfort. His wife says, you are still holding on to your faith, to your wholeheartedness, curse God and die. So he says to her, you speak as one of the foolish ones, shall we accept the good from God and not the bad from God? Behold, Lord, with all of this, Eyob did not sin, 
with his lips. Now, most commentaries want to say that, in fact, he still remained a righteous person. Fine. Ramban wants to say that in his heart he started to question and challenge. I don't know where to go with that. We don't have to go anyplace with that. Whether Ramban's right or analyzing this literarily, he didn't curse God with his lips verbally, but in his heart he did. That's one way of viewing this. But okay, either way, assuming he didn't sin, his three friends come when they hear this horrible thing that happened to him. Each person came, Eliphaz, Bildad, Sofad, they came close to him in order to comfort him. They looked up their eyes from afar. They didn't recognize him. Why didn't they recognize him? Because the boils, big boils over his whole entire body, swollen, infected. I'm trying to be dramatic because I want you to feel his pain. It's important to feel what he was feeling, right? Well, maybe that skin affliction was chosen because it's not only painful to him, but it's painful for people to see him that way. Um, like if he has an inside pain, so he looks okay from the outside. Right, good. It affects the way his friends treat him. Good, that's an important element, very important element. We're not going to do this, but if you go to the end of the book, that becomes perhaps the most important element. As we see, goes in chapter 33 and 34, which we're not going to do. But okay, good point. So now, what, what's their reaction? They cried. Imagine somebody in such great pain. We've all seen people in great pain, from whatever the cause. Men, your wives gave birth. They were in extraordinary pain. Anybody here cry? Jordan? No. I'm not going to ask anybody because it's not, you know. But why didn't we cry? You know, it's temporary, you know. You know. Natalie, do you want to kick him or should I ask Mark to kick him under the table? You didn't ask him what I said the next day. I'll ask him. (laughs) Did you just say that? No, come on. I told Emily, don't you dare say that the next day. I said, don't say that because. This wasn't my fault. I mean, sort of. <laughs> what I mean. Well, we're on about today. You were helping with the breathing, whatever, and the coaching, whatever. Not like old times. I didn't like it old times. I helped with breathing. And we said I was a great coach. I, I did a good job, so. I didn't have time to cry. I didn't have time to cry. Well, I, mean, I, I mean, the pain was enormous. I mean, it, I mean, it was really amazing from what I was observed. Yet, I don't know if any man that ever cried in his wife's agony and pain. It's interesting. What would it take for you to cry at somebody else's pain? I mean, tremendous empathy, compassion, but empathy so strong that you are feeling the pain. I mean, it's unusual. It's interesting. You know, where that would cause you to, you know, there's a situation that happened in life, you know, God save us, where there is reason to cry over somebody else's pain. They lift up their voices and they cried in pain. They didn't recognize him. Couldn't recognize him because of the swollen balls all over his body. They lifted the voice, they cried. They tore their clothes in a sign of mourning. Mourning, of course, mourning. It's as if he's better to die than to be in this utterly incredible agony. They placed dirt on their head, which is what on their head, the heavens, in a show of agony. Now, this is interesting in contrast to what's now that will be as we go along. They sit with him in the, on the ground seven days and seven nights. They could not speak to him even 
because they had seen how great the pain was. Ki gadol me'od. I could raise the question, was this the greatest pain ever inflicted in Tanakh? Right? So I would have to do a transbiblical study and see where the word ke'ev appears. I didn't do this, I didn't think of doing this, but it's a good exercise to do. To see whether or not Eov is described as the most pained individual in all Tanakh. In general, as a quick um, mental search right now, the word ke'ev does not appear all that many times. The Bible does not speak extensively about pain. Even in the uh, Egyptian narrative, we don't find that the Egyptians are ever in great pain. The word ke'ev is not used in that narrative. The word sa'ar sometimes is used. We want to find out the difference between sa'ar and ke'ev. Right? That's one thing that we do. So all that's a literary analysis, not for now. But now we can speak to him because his pain was so great. Now imagine somebody whose pain is so great. And again, we all have seen people in great pain. You can't speak. You can't speak. Afterwards, then, Yov opens his mouth and he crushes his day. The day that he was born. And he says... In chapter 3, I'm going to do two more verses now. Yovad Yom, let the day that I was born on to be stricken from the calendar. And the night, he said, the night which said a man has been born, namely that your, your mother has given birth to you, let that night be stricken from the calendar. I'm in such great pain that I wish I had not been born. Let that day be a day of darkness. God should not seek it out from above, right? No light whatsoever. And he goes on later on, and there's five verses over here of darkness and things like this. It's interesting how the, uh, the, the, the phrases, the sentences are very short and sharp and to the point. Right, very much so. Good point, yeah. Well, because he's, he's in agony. Right. He's in agony. And all the way down to verse 9, he says... Because the doors of the womb, of my womb, were not closed. In other words, what, what is he saying over here? What should have happened from his point of view? He should have been born. The doors of his mother's womb should have been closed when he was still internally. Internal. Let the doors of my mother's womb be closed. And then all this agony would have been hidden from me. Why didn't I die in verse 10 from the womb? I should have died right there and then. I wouldn't, if, if, the, if the, the doors of the womb were not closed right away from me, what should have happened? I should have been born and then I should have died right away. That's what I would have wanted to have happened. Why did I see knees? What does knees mean? It means when he was in a birth process, he emerged from the birth canal and he saw his mother's knees. Right? And why did I nurse for my mother? I should have done all this. I should have stopped, didn't nurse from the very beginning, and ultimately died, finished, sleep. Then I'd been, then I would have been in Yanuach, would have been pleasant for me, restful for me. Stop here. Now, of course, Job is one of the most fascinating of biblical books, one of the most extraordinary biblical books. It raised the question of righteous man suffering. In chapter 38, which we're not studying, this is not the topic that we're dealing with. Chapter 38, God finally, after 35 chapters, responds to Eov. Eov says to God, I challenge you. Answer me. Tell me. His three friends keep, keep saying throughout the next 35 chapters, you sin, that's why you're punished. You must have sinned. 
they conclude erroneously that because a man suffers, he must have sinned. And Eos says, I never sinned. I don't know why I'm suffering. And finally, God himself answers Eov's complaint. And at the end of the book, God says to Eov, you have to pray for your three friends because, point before, and now it's point before, because Lord, they didn't speak to me with honesty or with straightforwardness. Therefore, they cannot pray. One who was a hypocrite, insincere, cannot pray. Obviously not. So they cannot pray. They are in hot water. They're in big trouble. God's against them. God's angry with them. And they can't even pray. If a person is insincere, how could you pray to God? Therefore, what happens? Because you speak to me with honesty as my servant Eov. So Eov spoke honestly. He challenged. He stormed the heavens. He questioned. He maintained his ground. I didn't sin. To all his friends. For 35 chapters worth. With one variation of an argument and response or another. At the end of the day, God says to him, Eov, you have integrity. You're honest. You're straightforward. You could pray. And God then blesses Eov. And he has 10 more children and great wealth. And lives to see his great, great, great grandchildren. Four generations. Wonderful story. It was a very happily ever after ending. But you could raise that as a question as well. Is it really so happy? He lost 10 of his children. Wealth comes and wealth goes. So we could all deal with that, I imagine. All right, I mean, uh, I never had a lot, so I didn't lose a lot. So I, maybe I'm, I'm underplaying that element. Take a person that was a, you know, a superstar rich millionaire in his lifestyle, and all of a sudden he's wiped out completely with enormous debt because he borrowed the finance. Maybe his pain is great. I mean, there are people who jump out of buildings because of things like this. I mean, that's true. Depression and, and, and otherwise. I mean, from the Depression era. He jumped out of buildings because of the stock market crash. And otherwise, yes, well, that could be enormously psychologically debilitating. So I shouldn't underplay it. To me, it doesn't mean that much to gain or to lose it. So, so maybe I'm wrong in that. Certainly, the health aspect to been gone through. So, okay, we could even say that that should forget the pain. Okay. But losing 10 kids? So if you lose 10 kids and you have 10 more kids, it should not. He's happy. How does one deal with that? So, but on the other hand, maybe Eov is of such a mind that he understood the flash of insight, this whole entire story. Maybe he understood um, that my children were born and lived limitedly only for the purpose of testing me. So it all worked out according to the divine plan and I'm comfortable with it. And all's well that ends well. That could be. Not to go into it right now. Fascinating, wonderful, extraordinary book. We've studied the first two and a half chapters which certainly are striking. Do we all agree that this is a most striking chapter? God, Satan, Eov, God twice involved, all of that seems to be one of the most striking narratives in all Tanakh. Hard to defend that. One could again study the classical Jewish commentaries or the medieval Jewish commentaries or the modern Jewish commentaries and raise the question, what's going on over here? Is this really a Jewish source? Is it a pagan source? This would fit well into pagan literature. But it's adopted by Tanakh. Right? And I mentioned to you that there is a Babylonian Job, a book that's called Babylonian Job, where a man complains bitterly, etc., about his bad luck and ill fortune and nothing works out for him and he's ill and pain. Did you intentionally change the chair? 
Did you, did you have, did you, you're going on strike? Is that this a work stoppage? <laughs> Some good exercise. Good. So that's the um, that's you know one of the questions that one can ask about this book. How to understand this book? Ibn Ezra holds that it was translated from another language, either Akkadian or Ugaritic, ancient source, whatever it may be. Certainly, it's a very striking perception. Or just translated? Um, he doesn't say he just translated. It could have been Judaized, but if it were Judaized, if it were in fact a translation from another source, and that's because some Hebrew words are hard here, if it were, then why don't the rabbis Judaize it even more so? I mean, get rid of the first two chapters. Although the dramatic appeal is there because of the first two chapters. But with the rabbis interested in dramatic appeal at the expense of the ideas that are that emerge from this, it's hard to live with these first two chapters. Sorry. And some commentators say, I mean, the beginning and the end were a popular, you know, some sort of popular It's a modern, story more, more modern Everybody knew of, and then and it was sandwiched in between to give you perspective on... So who did the sandwiching? The rabbis. Or the, who did the sandwiching? Whatever. Whoever wrote it. I don't know if we were an IV. Inspired by the rabbis may have written it, or whoever. Maybe, maybe it wasn't. It wasn't. Maybe, yeah, right. Maybe it was inspiration. Maybe. Who said? I don't know. Isn't that We don't really actually know the criteria for canonization. We know very little about canonization. What took place when? The rabbis actually, in no place in neither Tanakh or in Talmud discuss canonization. There are isolated statements, there are isolated statements where we have snippets of rabbinic thinking upon the process of canonization. But we don't really have a statement that really clearly definitively says, five books are canonized at this point. Then comes the Nevi'im, and then comes Ketuvim. Instead, for example, has a statement in the third century after the common era, Ketuvim Dorot, I want to be remembered forever which seems to indicate that it was not yet canonized. It's very strange, because how could they still have said that because she five years earlier? So let's say put the words in the rabbi's mouth, whatever it was, uh, not to get involved in that. But, so she said, at that point she was not canonized. And indeed, she was, instead of the one book, biblical, not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So she would, so instead it was not canonized up to the second or third century after the common era. So it wasn't part of Tanakh then. So when was it, when was the process happened? So we don't, know, we don't know the criteria. And, even more so, there are multiples of books, pseudepigraphical writings that we have, the church accepted, we do not, they look perfectly biblical. Chokhmat Shalomor, Ben Sira. They're very good, wonderful books that you can't tell between Chokhmat Shalomor and Mishle. Okay, so those were written by the original authors. So it, it was pseudepigraphical writing, so that really was not um, part of it. Okay, I'm not worried about that. But, um, I don't know, whoever wrote it, why did he not make it more palatable for us? And maybe he was writing that. He was writing to the mind at that time. So that was okay to them. So what was their theology? And why was I trying to teach them a new lesson, a new idea? So I'm not disputing. I'm not sure. I don't, we don't know exactly who wrote it, when they wrote it, why they wrote it, what was the point of writing it. All it really does at the end is justify God's action. Or not even justify. It's interesting. Because if all this guy's actually not justified, because we walk away saying, why this happened to Eov? He's a good, great... Your feeling of this should be, should be why? I don't want to be Eov. I don't want to be Tom, and Samira. I don't want to be that person. I don't lose my kids. I don't lose my wealth. I don't lose my, my health. I don't want to be stricken. Even at the end of the day, and it's 
It's an obvious point. If I gave you that choice, would you take it? Of course not. Everyone should vigorously shake, shake your heads. Of course you're not going to take it. You don't want to lose any of those things. So, what's the point? And in chapter 38, when God answers Eeyore, God answers very angrily Eeyore. It's not a simple story whatsoever. Very angry is God. God answers Eeyore from a whirlwind. So Eeyore is screaming bitterly. Answer, answer. All of a sudden, this huge storm strikes up. Huge storm. And a voice emerges from the, strong, from the storm and says, where, the, where were you when I created the world? What do you know? You're not even a worm. What are you? And Eeyore says, okay, you're right. Again, we're not studying this right now, but so it's a very striking context. End of striking context number one. Now we're going to switch to another context, and it, it goes with the same introduction as before. This is very subjective, and you may or may not find it striking. It's going to be striking in a very different way than the Eeyore narrative is striking. Very different, admittedly. And um, you will hear, we will eventually, not the first reading, come to uh, some commentaries on it to see how they deal with this. Because they are so wigged out with this particular narrative that they're going to have to find a way to rationalize it somehow. We can't live with this narrative the way it is. So open up to chapter 28 of the book of Samuel. Samuel. You have all should have it in your Tanakh. It's in volume one. Volume one, volume one, volume one. Okay, there. The black is volume one. Chapter 28. Right? Samuel one. Chapter 28. Uh, one second. Twenty. Uh, one second. Um, no, did I say 28? No, I don't want 28. One second. 20. Uh, yeah, 28. 28? Yeah, 28. Why do you say it's worthwhile? It's worthwhile. Oh, it's worthwhile. Verse 3. 28, verse 3. Yeah, very striking. Now, Shemuel, verse 3. I'll try to go through the text fairly quickly, initially, because um, we do want to get to the commentaries. Yeah, that's what it is. We raise the dead over here. <laughs> you raised? Who, who did you raise? I didn't mean that he really raised anybody. So not Shemuel. Yeah, very striking. Sorry? Shemuel? I tried. No, his son. Shemuel's son. Oh, <laughs> Now, it's very striking. Again, this is something that haunts me. You know, at night you wonder what really went on over here. And again, you have to be careful. And here's what's, what's sad about this. Your kid learns this in 6th or 7th grade. Right? What grade? 8th grade? I don't remember. I don't remember. Which one? Okay, so one or the other. And now the teacher is going to neutralize this. Its dramatic appeal is in the shock value and striking nature of it but we can't live with the shock value. Our kids are going to ask us questions about this, so you have to figure out a way of dealing with it. But then, 
the net result, sadly, is that they become kind of neutralized to the rest of Tanakh, and then they end up, as they get older, of explaining away all of these narratives and all of these very strange phenomena. It's sort of like the more radical the stories that you read to your kids are, the less strike, the less radical these stories will be. Let's say you're reading uh, to your kids stories about um, Ace of Stables or any kind of stories that you know that people who have Grimm's fairy tales, whatever it may be, so, or Greek mythology, I mean, any of that stuff to your kids, then you, you have a Garden of Eden story where you have a snake speaking or a donkey speaking in Bilam, and what are they going to say to you? Eh, no big deal, snake speaking. In Grimm's fairy tales, the snake not, only, snake not only spoke, it flew as well. And then they end up not analyzing it carefully, not raising the right questions about it, and not having any clues to what it really means. It's lost. Akin to those of us who are old enough, remember the electric company. No, 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 no. Me only? On television, electric company. Oh, that's correct. Okay, don't tell me you're that young. Okay, you do remember it. Yeah, I'm telling you my kids to watch it. What? No, it's a company. Oh, it was it was so dynamic. Where numbers flashed at you. Four, three, red colors, blue, and the kids were mesmerized. I mean the three and four were mesmerized, you know, for for thirty for the thirty minutes it was on. And they just had, you know, these these Big numbers, small, it, it was a great educational program. What was the problem? That we as teachers were to then compete and say, this is the number four. Teacher, how come it doesn't light up? How come it's not big and small and square and, and triangular? Well, things are worse now. Now we're competing with video games and, and it has to be louder and brighter and everything. Oh, okay. Everything is just so okay. Worse. It could be even worse. This is the question that was raised educationally 20 years ago, when electric company was on, it was too much overload in an educational context and no school could compete with it. Is that why it went off the air? I don't know. It might have been. Yes, it might have been. Maybe somebody then people said this is just not working. It's not, it's not good. They thought they're doing great stuff teaching. No, but that would be the same for Sesame also. Then everybody loves I don't think Sesame, Sesame is as... Sesame is still on. Yes? The, what's so dramatic Sesame Street? Yeah, but you still learn. It's at, not as extreme as Electric Company. It was not as extreme. Okay, but it's had that kind of Okay, so it's the same issue. Okay, I hear it, same issue. As opposed to that, Mr. Rogers. He <laughs> <laughs> calms the kids. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Open the zipper and close it. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the most, you know. Oh, <laughs> what, do you do with, what do you do with Mr. Rogers? What do you do with him? Right. He's funny. Anyway, so, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's, very, it's exactly, exactly the opposite. Kids did like because he was a very calming chant. Yeah, he's a priest, you know, pastor of some sort. Really? I didn't know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's a pastor, yeah. Okay, so, when you read enough of other kinds of literature, then you lose your sensitivity, your literary sensitivity, and you miss the whole point. Because should we not be struck by the fact that God wants you to sacrifice your son? If you're not struck by that fact, doesn't jar your sensitivities, then you may miss the point. You know, if our premise over here is that God wants to teach not to sacrifice your son, 
wants you to raise the question, and at the end, the dramatic letdown is why. God says, no, don't do it. Don't do it. No, I don't want your son. Oh. You sure, God, you don't want my son? I'm sure I don't want your son. So that would be a dramatic point and counterpoint, which Tanakh should do for you. So, the question is that sometimes when you do this with children, you end up rationalizing. Kids get their, they put, at the end of the day, their carts before the horse. So they end up losing what this is really all about. Until they gain, if at all, most don't, a more mature approach to this. And they're able to raise serious questions, be challenged by them, and then answer them. That's what commentary is all about again. When you're stricken by this to think through and raise a question. How am I going to answer this narrative? What's it going to do for me? You know, and that's what takes a lot of work. To sit down to text and not first look at Ashi and Ibn and all that stuff. Be challenged by a text. Try to find out the answer. Why does God say this? In any narrative context. Raise the question all the time. And try, try to find the answer to it. Okay, so let's look at this text now and see. Shemuel had died a long time ago, right? A long time ago. Why is this chapter telling this now? Because obviously it's going to play a role as we go along, right? Okay. All of Israel had mourned him. He's buried in Amman, in the high place, in his city. And Shaul had removed all of the sorcerers and all of the magicians from the land. Why tell me this all of a sudden? Well, obviously, again, it's right. It's anticipatory. The author of the Bible in general was so literarily concerned that you could find, of course, rhetorical questions. You could find anamanopoeia. You could find metaphors, assonances, alliteration. All that you could find. This is called anticipatory. He wants you to raise the question, why are you telling me this now? His answer would be, Read on. Now, verse 4. All the Pilishtim gathered. They came and they encamped in the place called Shunem. Shaul gathered all of Israel and they encamped in Gilboa. Shaul sees the encampment of the Pilishtim, the Palestinians. By Yira, he's afraid. His heart trembles intensely. He's petrified. Right? He's got to do battle with the Pilishtim. Interesting, of course, that Shaul, 15 chapters earlier, also had to face the Pilishtim and Goliath when David came through. David can no longer come through. Why not? Because he's been his enemy. So David's not going to come through anymore. Sad. And all this by contrast to Shaul's extraordinary victory to place at the very beginning of his reign. What at the beginning of his reign? He's anointed. Nobody accepts him. He's a quiet guy. He plays in the kitchen with all the utensils. He's nobody. And they said, Zeyoshiano, he will help us. The Ammonites attack the Yavishkelat people. We will not attack you unless you give us your right eye. Take out your right eye and we won't attack you. Um, the Yavishkelat says, wait, let's consult. They tell, they tell Shaul, oh, that's what they want from us. Our right eye. What should we do? Wait, he goes out and he takes two um, calves, he shakes them. He says, raise the legal question, if he's allowed to do this or not. Whoever does not follow me now, this is what we'll do to his wealth, to his 
Bakar to his people, if you don't abide by their rules, going to war, support the war, or uh, going to the army. The government has pretty serious powers. So they, maybe they could. So maybe Shaul was not halakhically doing anything wrong. It's a good question. So he tells his people that. He gathers a huge army. He does battle against Ammon. He saves these people. Now he is celebrated as the king of Israel. So the war effort is what ultimately enthroned him in the popular imagination. Good. Now the war again is going to undo him. So now Shaul does what every good king would do. Verse 6. He asks God. God doesn't answer him. Why doesn't God answer him? God has abandoned him. Why has God abandoned him? Okay. Okay. Um, could we say that? Could we say that he abandoned God? We don't find him abandoning God. But we do find, and maybe this can be interpreted as that, is that he does know that David is supposed to rule in his stead. That is God's wishes. He knows that and refuses to abdicate. So are you not abandoning what God wants if you refuse to abdicate? God enthroned him. God can dethrone him. He says no. So in that sense, Shaul, you know, never speaks to God and what does he do? So now he raises the question, God does not answer him. Even in dreams, even in the Urim Tumim of the Kwanim War, even in the prophets, God does not answer any of Shaul's pleas and cries. Verse 7. Shaul says to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a sorceress. I'll go to her. I'll ask her. His, his servants say to him, Yes, there's one woman sorceress, the witch of Endor. Let's find her. Now, Shaul finds her. Why does he have to wear other clothes? Change, disguise. He had banned all of them, he had moved all of them, and we'll see by her reaction that he more, it's more than that. So he dresses other clothes. He and two of his two men go with him. They come to the woman at night. Bayomi says, Kasomi na li ba'ov. I want you to engage in witchcraft. And I want you to raise that who I will tell you. Now, for Shaul, the king of Israel, to do this, to engage in witchcraft, and to want to raise the dead, is a very striking issue. It's desperation. It's desperation. But does the king of Israel do this? Does any righteous person do this? If God abandons you, what should you do? Pray? Okay, good. He prayed. No answer. Do you go become Christian? Do you go to Buddhism? Do you go to... What do you do? He's engaging in paganism right now. That's a form of paganism. Clear violation of the Torah. That's for sure. Nobody would question that. Does he have the halakhic right to do this? The answer is, of course not. Why How does the king of Israel do this? Why is the She's a medium. She has the ability. She has a God-given ability to do something like this. Are you a pagan? Um, what do you mean she has the God-given ability to do this? Who said? I don't, the Torah bans it. Said? I'm sorry? Oh, Alright, so hey, weren't there prophets that weren't Jewish and, but they were real prophets? Like, and, you know, there's one. We have Bil'an. One, but there were more, but we don't believe them. But no, no. were they, you know... Not sure what you're referring to. So, 
Because the Torah tells that he was a real, uh, God spoke to him. So we know that God spoke to him. So it was perceived. So God did speak to him, but yet God's in control of him, of course. So he's. So, so this lady brings. Well, we, let's see the whole context first. What she says I don't know yet. I don't know yet. We will see. I don't want to tell you any answers. You have to come back next week if you want the answers. <laughs> we still won't get the answers. And you're still going to get the answers. Wednesday night or Tuesday night? Wednesday night. I have a wedding Tuesday night. Tuesday night what? I could have come Tuesday night. Oh. <laughs> I have a wedding. Okay. So Wednesday night. Okay, so now. let's. So, so this is certainly... You're surprised. But it gets worse, by the way. But you're certainly surprised by this. The king of Israel, man who, whom God himself has chosen, ends up his life in this context of going to a sorceress and says to her, engage in sorcery, which against the, the Torah itself, we have to go through that, but it's the book of uh, Shoftim, two more perashiyot, where God says, do not engage in any of this. This is paganism. We don't believe in this. Can't do it. You can't go to a fortune teller, a seance person, a medium. The one that brings people up from the dead. It, it, it's Winnie. He says he gets the guy from the audience. She is. She is. What's his name? Nobody does this on TV. Three o'clock every day. Three o'clock every day. Now you're not supporting your wife. Yeah, I think he's. He watches. It's supposed to be funny. What? Forcing over. No, I know what you're talking about. What is he doing? Okay, so he takes someone from the audience. I don't know if it's like a you say something so general, it fits into the it fits into the category. People, they go, oh, I'm thinking of someone who has a sister with a scene. Someone who already. Yeah, but then they say it's funny. But then they say funny. He says funny. That's they're really can't be. Could be now. I'm stuck out. You watched it. You watched it. I've seen it. I've seen it. Basically, a magician, maybe. Yeah. What bothers you? We didn't get there yet. Why? But. When they say someone's lost and someone's psychic finds them, we're saying that's paganism? Maybe. I don't know if it's really true or not true. You have to see. You have to analyze well, it. You're not allowed to believe in it, but it's love. No, no, maybe, so yes. I don't know yet. I, I don't want to speak in generalities. I don't know. Could be, if it's true, it can't be paganism. If it's true. Are there people with real mediums? Is ESP? Is that what we're talking about? Is there people with that gift? That's another question. We're not talking about that question right now. Right? What about this? That's an interesting class. To what degree, if any, does Jews believe in ESP or in mediums or psychics or whatever else? Wait. In this context, it's certainly pagan. Not. I'm not going to go out of this context right now. Okay. So here we have this. So the question over here is: <clears throat> Is it a striking that in fact Shaul goes this route? The answer is yes. It's striking. It lifts one. One eyebrow. One eyebrow will lift with this. Yeah, but there's no relationship. So we leaned on him and have you... Leaned on Shaul. Leaned on Shmuel. Okay. He's alive. And it's more than that, though. But Shaul is, you know, has, has that very strange behavior. Shaul? Why? Yeah, he's not like, you know, his whole... He's driven. He's desperate. He's driven, you know, rips his world. Well, just for him, he's for, for, for David. Oh, Shemuel. Yeah, you know how we do it. Oh, that's your... Oh, no, 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 that's his whole personality. Is to... You need that crutch. You can't... Agree. Okay. The chasing of David and, you know, and how he... I agree. 
I have no problem with what you're saying. So you're saying you're not surprised, you're not stricken by the fact that he went to a medium who wants to raise the dead. It's, a, it's unusual, but it's not beyond comprehension. It's, it's none of this is beyond comprehension. But we maybe you're not supposed to do it, but it doesn't mean it doesn't work. I didn't say that it did not work. My question over here, are you surprised mildly that the king of Israel did this? Mildly, yes. Okay, good. That's all I'm saying. You got I mean, he's, instead of looking for a solution to defeat the Philistines, he's going to, he, he's lost it, and he's going to a sorcerer. Exactly. Okay, he's so, so desperate. Agree. But I agree. So, I agree. I think that's part of it. He's so desperate. It's a bit surprising, somewhat surprising, but it's not beyond belief. Of course you're right. Let's go on. But Tomei so the woman says to him, you know, you know, what Shaul did, he cut out, cut off, rooted out all of the sorcerers and the witches from the land. So she knows, I don't want to do this. Shaul killed all of them. Why are you asking? Why are you trying to conspire to put me to death? That's the issue over here. He, she feels he is plotting to put it this. Like he's fooling her. He's going to end up saying, raise the dead, she raised the dead, and then I'm going to kill you. So he says, I swear to you, I swear to you by God's name, which is kind of ironic. He's swearing by God's name, but okay, by God's name. I swear by God's name, if this will be viewed as a transgression, you do this. So the woman says, okay, good. So I'm not going to be hurt by this. I'll do it. Who do you want me to raise up? I want you to raise up Shemuel. Okay, Shemuel. The woman, the woman sees Shemuel, but his ark they call Gadol. She sees Shemuel. What does that mean? She raised him. Are you stricken by this, Jaime? She actually raised, the Tanakh says, she raised Shemuel from the dead. Are you happy with this? Can you accept this? Is what really happened? Text says it did. Natalie's skeptical. You're from Brooklyn. You don't believe anything. Okay, so it's a very surprising context. And the woman says to Shaul, Why did you fool me? You're really Shaul. The fact that she had raised Shemuel became clear to her, became clear to her that he is Shaul. So the king says, Don't be afraid. What did you see? She says to Shaul, Elohim Ra'iti. I've seen. Now, Elohim can mean all kinds of things. It can mean a uh, man of great stature, it can mean God, it can mean a judge. So let's say it means a man of great stature. Elohim, I see a man of great Olim, I see men, it's plural. Men of great stature arising from the ground. He says, what does he look like? Well, he's old. He's old. He's wearing a little, a little cloak. Now, where does that fit in? Of course, we know early on, first of all, Shemuel died at the age of 50, around 50, you want to think it is. So he wasn't old, sorry? 52. And also, his mother had made him a me'il 50 years earlier when she took him to Jerusalem from where they lived. Also, that, also the, the me'il as well, correct. That plays a significant, clothes play a very significant role in the book of Shemuel. A lot of clothes play a role. So first is that his mother made him me'il, he's wearing the me'il. Okay, that's strange you're wearing the me'il. I mean, after you passed away, you would think that you're not wearing what your mother made to you 50 years ago. He does. 
no, Lord and Taylor. Was, you know, she, he liked it. Shaul knows that Shmuel Shmuel he bows down. They cut up on Asavish and he bows down. Shmuel says to Shmuel, give me five more minutes. Shmuel says to Shaul, why have you hit guys tiny? Why have you trembled me, uh, vexed me? Why have you disturbed me? All that to raise me up. Is your skin starting to crawl? Not yet. Okay. Shaul says, I'm very pained. Pelishtim are fighting against me. Hashem has gone from me and has not answered me. Gam b'yanevim, not in the hands of the prophets, not in the hands of the dream, not in dreams. But I called you to tell me what should I do. Right? So now Shemuel is communicating with him. Shemuel says, why are you asking me? God has left you. Right? God is not in favor of you. Bahi Arecha, God hates you. How do they translate that? Bahi Arecha? Your enemy. Okay, good. Same thing. So now, Bayas, sorry? Bayas Hashem lo ka'ashed diber biyadi. God has done to him that which he spoke to me. God has torn your mamlacha. Maybe the me'il is functioning on this level over here because that's what happened in that context. God has torn the kingdom from your hands. Gave it to David, your friend, your, your friend David. Because you did not listen to the voice of God, you didn't do with Amalek, etc. Therefore, it's happened to you today. Good. All that he's telling him. So he's reminding him of his past. And Israel is going to be given up to the hands of the of the Pilishtim. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Meaning? He will die. Correct. And even the whole encampment of Israel, God shall give them the Pilishtim. Shaul, by my head, quickly falls to the ground. His whole entire height Haik played a role in Shaul also. In the very beginning, he's defined and described as from his shoulders to his head. He was, he was 6'5", above everybody else. Right? He was huge. So his whole entire length of height falls to the ground. He's a petrified. In the words Shemuel, there was no strength in him. He didn't, eat, he didn't eat that entire day and the whole time. Now he's fasting 25 hours. And the woman comes to Shaul and she sees that he's, that he's in a state of shock. He's, he's been become uh, shocked at what he's seen. She says to him, Listen, your servant has listened to your voice and I took my life in my own hands. I listened to your words. You told me to do. And now, Now listen to me and I'll put for you some bread to eat and you'll have strength to go. She wants him to go. So eat and run. Which is down, eat and run. Right? He refuses. I can't eat. They entreated him, please eat. So did the woman. And he smiles at them. He gets up from the ground, sits on the bed, couch, sorry. Sits on the couch. And the woman has an aigil, malbek, babayd, a nursing cap at home. And she quickly makes it. She shechts it. She gives flour, batofim, and she makes matzot. Which reminds us of Abraham, very similar scene. Abraham has an aigil, Abraham has matzot, same exact scene, interesting. She gives it in front of Shaul, and, when, and Abraham does it in front of who? Malachim, same context. Yeah, same context. In front of uh, his servants, and they eat, and they go, 
that night. That's the end of that chapter. Right? So, <clears throat> we're stricken by the fact that Sha'ul does in fact do this, number one. We're also struck by the fact that it works. That it really worked. Shemuel is raised from the dead and does in fact communicate a message to Shaul. Israel will die and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. How do you, what do you do with this? First question you could ask, is there any place else in Tanakh that that happens? Where somebody's raised from the dead in quite this way? So the answer of course is no. Nowhere else in Tanakh is anybody raised from the dead in any which context. In a pagan society, it might be very common. Here it's very uncommon. Now, again, you could raise the question that when this book was canonized, why was this not Judaized? Somehow, some fashion. Or does the Orthodox want you to believe? Yes? What does he want you to believe? That it actually happened. Well, that certainly is the case over here. Where we are right now is, as Joy pointed out before, that this really happened. So the Torah tells you, root out all this stuff. It's pagan, but it's true. A pagan... It works. It works. A pagan witch of Endor can, in fact, raise the dead, and they can, in fact, communicate messages even to a Jew. To raise the dead. Well, Bil'am, yeah, no, for Nav- yeah, only Bil'am. He uses witchcraft to try to, and it doesn't work. God does not accept what he does. At the end, God manipulates him into saying what God wants him to say. This is a very successful pagan context. But how does it appear over here? Why is somebody not doing something about this? And, as we'll see next week, the commentaries, especially the Adak, those who want to prepare it, has a long comment trying to do away with this. Actually, she does not. Adak's, I can't live with this as it is. It's too striking. As it is, I can't accept this. Now, he's a medieval rationalist. Sorry? Maimonides or Nachmanides? Nachmanides did not write a commentary on Nach. Or what, there is one book out actually which tries to cull from his other works um, various comments on various biblical portions. I don't know if this is in it, but he did not write a systematic commentary, so we don't know what he would say about it. But it's an interesting question. But the medievals, the rationalists of the medieval period are obviously going to have a very hard time with this. So they got to do something with this because it's so striking. Now you may choose, if you choose, to not find out how to solve this problem rationally my point is that it's a very striking text. It's something that should disturb one who reads it. This is not a Jewish context. Why is this over here? I'm not sure. You know, I don't know if Lee wants to put this, you know, with a beginning, ending, and something else type of thing over here. But it's very surprising to raise the dead. We don't want to teach this. You know, and it's interesting how Lee explained it to his kid, whichever kid it was. What did you do with this? Daddy, daddy, this witch raised us my best... Can I go to this witch? <laughs> Can I go uh, engage in this practice? Medium? That's what it is. So what did the teacher say about this in school? Yes, please. What are you me for? Ask what about, him. What about um, mere mortals who have uh, uh, 
vivid dreams and you know prophecies and they saw yeah they saw their grandparents or a great rabbi I don't know somebody come to them I don't know no that's a it's a it's a, it's a more interesting question it's a very broad question it's a broad question in that the great thinkers of Judaism believed in true dreams, vertical dreams, as did Aristotle and Plato. There is a phenomenon that occurs to people wherein they believe what they've dreamed, what happened, what they've dreamed. It is a real phenomenon, psychological phenomenon. Try to explain it. A man came to me a couple of years ago. So you rather explain this to me. I lost my Koracha and Shul. I couldn't find it. Deal Shul. I couldn't find it. I'm very upset about it. I dreamed that it was in place X and it was exactly in place X. Yeah, but, but it's like that. It's like that book. We did that book many nights. Yeah, that, that maybe somewhere in, in the background he, he, he Dressed up. He put it there, or well, he saw someone put it there, but he forgot. And Good. And he somehow he remembered. Okay. That so, and the, so did he, did he not have the dream? Well, he could have had the dream, but it was in his sub, subconscious, and it came up from that. Okay. She he solved my problem. He was looking for it, and right. it came Good. through in the time. Good. Of, uh, so, true dreams or deja vu. Often that is the case where deja vu, you know, the words, you could. Uh, anticipate, let's say you're planning a picnic, going to the beach, and you dream about it, right? You dream about the intensity, the emotions, the excitement, picnic, everything else, and you go there, and you end up sort of uh, either deja vuing, or you sort of say, you know, I dreamt that I was here. Well, yes, you planned it, and that's why I dreamt that you're here. There's so many experiences that you could have, you know, where the brain is so complex, and how it works is so amazing, so overwhelming, that yes, all these kinds of phenomena do happen, and Aristotle, again, speaks about true dreams. We're in a person dreamt, or thinks that he dreamt something, and it corresponds to what happened the next day. And ev- everybody has experienced at one point or other. For various reasons. You can't explain You say this again? We say this again? You you thought I thought about somebody's father who I knew was very sick and whatever. And he passed away. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's strange. No, but but that's um, understandable. He's very sick. You're afraid Okay, agree. Okay, it doesn't say coincidental and whatever, but certain things, people tell you funny stories and they... But no, there's things, there's definitely something out there. Okay, so you're of that mind. I'm of that mind, I you all think I'm crazy. No, 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 no. You heard of one story? I heard some, a story, similar type story like that, where the son woke up, he was staying close to the hospital, was on Shabbat, woke up at the same time <coughs> that his father was like passing away. And but who? T- I mean, and he was, who told you it? 
Did it really happen that way? Was it at the exact same time? Same time? It's, the other question is, how many other nights did he wake up at the same time and everything was okay? Right. Statistically, that. these things can be explained in certain statistics, you know? You know, and, and sometimes... Sorry? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, we spend a week, there are many things. I mean, part of our acceptance of I mean, I don't accept everything, but there is certain things that we accept that we can't explain. You know, why are you looking at me? I mean, there are, there at this time, I look at everybody funny. That's not you. No, 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 of course, there are dozens of things we can't explain. Hollywood, I can't explain. So we're, talk- we're talking about... So well, there are mystical experiences. There are psychic experiences. There are things that... Now, if I then have to... If I then explain I mean, it and I mean, say that this is, this is, you know, supernatural or this is, you know, that I then accept, make an explanation for it, well, then I'm defining it differently. But, but I can step away from making the explanation and say... Why would you why would you step away from the from the rational to engage in the mystical? No, the, the, the rational is that I don't have an explanation for it. You I said I could explain it. Step away and explain. I could. No, sometimes it doesn't make sense. I I can look at there sometimes there are things that are that are odd enough that are overwhelmingly puzzling, whatever. And I can just say, well, I don't have an explanation for it. And somewhere you have to in God... Give us an answer to that. I mean, an example for that. Sorry, yeah, example. O- only because the generality of your statement are not convincing me that they really happen. I mean, Joy had a good example of that. You know, and then we have to either trust Joy that, you know, that she was able to... So everybody was able to say that maybe it wasn't as odd as she said it was. Maybe there were 20 plus people thought about the guy at that moment who, who, who when, when somebody didn't pass away. But sometimes there are Excuse things us, that are... Yeah. Sorry? Okay. Oh, that's important. Okay. See you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. The, the interesting thing... Wait, wait, wait. Just stand. You didn't give us an example of a mystical experience. I don't, I don't, I don't have one today. <laughs> if I come up with one, I'll... <laughs> you will not sleep on it. No, but one would want to explain all of those mystical. I'm not. I'm not necessarily accepting any of this at this point. Although, yes, there might be issues that I cannot explain. There might be uh, phenomenon out there, ESP types of stuff. But it's it's not. There's a magazine called the Skeptical Inquirer, and it tries to explain all these things away: the sightings, the ESP, the paranormal. By scientists. It's a very respected magazine. I, I get it occasionally. Sorry? Yeah. The Loch Ness Monster. They show you the pictures of the, the spaceship landing. And they tell you, you know, from this angle, this camera does not... And they try, they're attempted to explain all that stuff. Does Ori Zora, does he really bend forks with his pure mind? Ori Gallows, I don't know. Gallows, something like that. Okay, so there's a lot of those kinds of things. Really, or the, um, we, have the, we have the mentalists called... At all of our seminar programs. He guesses your age, he guesses all that, and he guesses, and he really is wiggy about it. 
So is he really a mentalist or there's some games that he's playing? How often is he right? All the time he's right. Hey, I tell you how much. What's his mind game? Right, right. He guessed what people had in their pockets. Exactly. So how did he do that? There's some sort of trick to doing it. Oh, you're a skeptic. Could you talk to Diane on the way out? What's <laughs> the trick? I, I don't know what the trick is. You, but you, you believe it's a trick? Definitely. How could it be a trick? He knows that your birthday was July 16th. Uh, I don't know how he does it. How do they cut the woman in half? No, 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 I know how No, that's the same thing. That I can explain. Yeah. That's mirrors or something. That's... Right. How does he know you have two quarters and a, pick, and, and, and a penny? Or has he, you, know, you all wrote down numbers, he guesses your numbers. See, I'm playing Diane's game right now. I'm not giving you specifics enough in order to debate the issue. Because I don't have any specifics, really. So we all could create scenarios that seem so wacky and wicked that we can't explain it. But had I given you specifics, an example, that we all saw and then said, okay, let's figure out how do you do this. Right? So that's it. You probably could explain it. Is, uh, unless you want to say, as Roy says, that the mentalist really is a true phenomenon. I've seen them five times. Each time they are amazing. Well, you could say he's counted and he has count, but if you were going to go to him for a prophecy, I would say that's not allowed. Okay. That's no, 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 no. Talented is not. Talented. Talented. That's a God-given talent. What he's doing. Who's, he, I, I don't. With, with Natalie saying not so. No, we're, we're not wait agreeing. a minute. Wait a minute. There, I is, think there is a talent. He I has. Believe. He has uh-huh. some sort of people skills where he can read read something in your face, like that guy on TV. Well, look, forget it. Yeah, right. it's not like, it, it's not, it doesn't come to him. No, it's, it's, it's exactly, it's not supernatural. He's maybe an unbelievable psychologist where he can read body language that, that is a talent. Yeah, I agree, but it's not true. not I could do or maybe you could do, but he could do that. Uh, I mean, in our religion, I mean, you have the Lubavitch Rebbe. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people went to see him, to have him intercede on every behalf, you know, sure. to have children, to become better, wealthy, I don't know. Sure. Thousands of people went to see him. Hundreds of thousands. Yeah. So, and many say, you know, it worked. And then, for many, it didn't work. Right. So I don't know if that's really the exact, you know, because again, you know, it's, it's the old example of um, someone comes to the rabbi who's pregnant and says, what does he have? And, and you can have a girl or have a boy. And it turns out, if it turns out right, the rabbi's right. It turns out, well, what could the rabbi say? It was changed. You could come up with an explanation that, what did you do that day? Oh, you didn't go to shul three times a day that, that day? That was changed. You know, the girl would explain away. A little bit You know, it's funny. He said, and this is really a game that I think they play. Sadly, I think, because he's a great man in many ways, but they overblown, they overblew him, so to speak, and therefore takes away from him. In a scud attacks, the Rebbe said, nobody's going to die. Right? This is in 1991. In fact, two people did die from heart attacks. Oh, he really meant from a direct hit. And did the Rebbe really say that? And did the Rebbe really say something, let's say, to the effect of that ten times in a row, and nine times is wrong, and one time is right, that becomes the front news. So did he say it, or did they say that he said it, when it happened on Thursday, he said he said it on Monday. Post facto. So you have to really analyze all these issues. 
and try to figure out exactly, you know, who, what's really telling. Uh, today, a person I was telling, Morris Cohen, a good friend of mine, said to me that his brother was ill and the doctors came to him, this is 20 years ago, lymphoma, said to him that he's, that's just very unlikely, sorry, said to him sorry, some Chinese uh, physician or something. Why do you say that? I remember that. What do you mean by something? What do you mean? Back then, Brother was ill. Right. You know Mars Cone. Okay. And you, therefore? Mm-hmm. And? And I went and consulted the rabbi and the rabbi said. To you did? No, no, no. He did. The family. Oh, the, the rabbi was on the phone while he's to the, to the doctor and everybody said, no, he's going to be fine. Yeah. And he was fine. He stopped his chemo and everything, he stopped everything else, and he was fine. Now that's fine, it's wonderful. But there might have been 50 other people, you know, that that didn't work out for. But why can't the people go, people will, will seek out certain rabbis to get a blessing from that person? Yeah, okay. I don't think there's anyone I'm not saying a magical blessing where this is that, because this person possibly, well, first of all, maybe they're right with it, but maybe there's either a sensitivity or a close, or this person may be mm-hmm. closer to Hashem for some reason, you know, that they, because of their righteousness, because of their whatever. Because of, now, why... That's possible. I'm not disagreeing that, with that. So, um, why is that... So, you're not disagreeing with that. I mean, why can't there be a level of closeness to God that one person be. has and another person doesn't have? Or I, I think there is. There must be. There must be. So, why, is, why do we have to... Um, we don't. We don't. Project. We don't. The question is, to what degree... We don't want to deify, we don't right. Which they did. Okay. They messianized. Which they did. You know, so, I mean, so there is a possibility, but, you know, we also want to take the possibility that that may not be the case. You know, you, if you went to Tosha Rebbe, you know, uh, my friend Joey Shem went to Tosha Rebbe when he had his heart transplant, and he checked his tefillin, oh yes, the world of Abicha, and your tefillin has a problem with it, change tefillin, change tefillin, you still have a transplant, he says you'll be fine, don't worry about it, you know, and then and you have a, and then you had a kidney failure, sorry? No. Had a kidney failure, and, and, and all that stuff, and the rabbi said, don't worry, it'll be fine, it's not fine. On the other hand, he's living, it's a 10 years or 12 years after his heart transplant. So is that fine, not fine? See, there's too many other variables, you know, so that might be right, might not be right, I think it's because we're insecure and that's what we're going to see. That's absolutely correct. And everybody's going to hit that moment of insecurity yeah. in one way or another. And it's helpful. So to the degree that it's helpful, and maybe if you believe in it, that's what makes it happen because you feel good better. Why, why can't this lady on the street have psychic abilities? Which lady? Some lady. Oh, yeah. I, don't know. I don't know that it exists. You want to name very yeah, they're so, I mean, like from, from 10, from, you know, in a matter of years, Toronto's not, there's so much, just even scientifically that we don't understand about the way Absolutely. the mind and the body Absolutely. Okay. Somebody would have said 15 years ago, well, this is nonsense, but it may not be nonsense, just because and, we and don't and have the, the... And, and, could the moon be made of cheese? Probably not, but... Oh, why, why, probably not? not. No, just because they, so just because you think they, because you think okay. they landed, it does not mean that it, they really were there. And because the, you, that's a whole other yeah, thing. Yeah, I'm aware of that. Sorry. What philosophy is that? 
Which other one? So that you don't know anything unless you... David Hume, many of them, I mean, Bishop Barclay, they deny reality. It's all a question of epistemology. You're saying maybe. Yeah, maybe. And maybe not. How do you, what is truth? How do you know truth? How do you prove truth? So you, when you, again, when you say that little Martians that right now are giving this class, and that's not really me speaking, may be giving this class, or maybe it didn't even happen, maybe you just dreamt, dreamt this whole thing, it's coming in tomorrow night, go through the whole thing again. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> to prove it, you're getting away from it. So you have, you're, you're dealing with a very you know, specific area of uh, philosophy called epistemology. How does one know... How does one know what one thinks one knows to be true? So maybe the moon may be made of cheese, or maybe Mars is, or maybe it's a... Maybe it's a... There is a cow that did drop off of the moon. Could be. We make some very... Guess about. Okay, so you want to accept maybe people uh, who have psychic ability, and uh, Natalie's a, a cheese moon person, I could tell. She's a cheese moon person. So she, it, it's the same equal validity. I mean, do you want to live life that way? Or do you, you know, Torah, you know, does not seem to grant, with this one exception, these people any kind of powers to raise the dead. And then the evil is going to say it didn't really happen. I'm foreshadowing and telling next week if you want to pursue this. I'm happy to say it's a very striking narrative and closing it here. If you want to pursue it, you see how the medievals dealt with it. It's interesting to see how they dealt with it. And they're going to be very upset about it. They're not going to accept it as such at all. So they're going to deny all this stuff. You know, so is ESP proven? Does, the, does Gene Dixon really predict somebody's going to be... Uh, it happened according to the simple level of the text. However, the medievals are not going to be happy with that interpretation of that reading of the text. They're going to say that didn't really happen. So, so someone made this up for our... Well, you'll see the commentaries next it, week. Could it have been a, a dream? Could have been anything. We'll see the commentaries. First of all, seeing the commentaries. Okay. I mean, you could raise them all kinds of ways. My point is they are not comfortable accepting this text as it is. Mm-hmm. They're not happy with it. Because it's pagan and because we don't raise the dead. It doesn't happen. We can't do it. Nostradamus. You know, how close is that to reality? <laughs> Look at what's like a picture taken. There's a big article, Nostradamus. And he predicted a Hitler. He said Hitler. And those who want to read his works will say, oh, but it was Ashkenazic, and therefore the Samach is the Tav. So Hitler becomes Hitler. You, you could read anything into his works. The Bible Code. The Bible Code, exactly. Afterwards, they completely demolished the whole theory. and they. Who did? The Bible Code. Statistical it doesn't, the numerical doesn't work because you have different, you have different Bibles essentially. You, have different, you know, if you take a, a different text, we have our received text, but that's not necessarily the original text. He would say, he would say that, and he would prove it. Different manuscripts, different this, different that. Ashkenazim still didn't have the same Torah text. Nor the Yemenites who have multiple changes in our Torah text. There's two changes. There's two. Shodaka and Serachot Asher, I think it is. Two changes.
Okay, so that's a different story. But again, it's, it's, after the fact, you have 300,000 letters, and except you want to find the bean in the top, you're going to find it. Although it still is impressive, you know, to find that bean in the top. But you know, Kennedy in the top. If you find all that stuff, I mean, I guess in, it's a question of statistical analysis. In a huge imaginary blackboard with 303,000 letters on it, right? And you can read it this way, that way, or this way, which improves your chances of finding anything. So then you find anything. Or uh, others will say that we did the same thing as Shakespeare and we couldn't find anything. And who knows? Because obviously those who want to find, find, and those who question it, question it. So all that's part of it. Yeah, sorry. Different realm. It. It's a different realm. So what does that mean? What does that mean? And why do we take their word? Because they were supposedly take the word for it. They were. Sure. And they're not all taking the word. It's not. Right. I never get to know. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's another realm. It's another way of dealing with uh, reality. Is is a part of normative Judaism? No, we don't believe. I mean, we don't follow Kabbalah. Per se, we're not practicing Kabbalists, you know. And the great Jewish thinkers, let's say uh, Maimonides, ever quotes it. And of course, the Kabbalists say that he really knew about it and didn't reveal it, and he's one of us, because nobody wants around to not be one of us. <laughs> Everybody can't be around Right. Exactly right. So it's a it's a difficult question. Agreed. That's a very difficult issue. So we will see. Next week we will figure out these commentaries on this particular narrative. You can decide whether you feel striking or not. And then we'll go to the third of our striking narratives. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Say hello to all our friends.